0: Life, Culture and Current Events from a Biblical Perspective, 2020 on Vision. According to reports out of the African nation of Mozambique, which only emerged relatively recently, 52 young men were slaughtered. That's right, 52 young men were slaughtered. Most were either shot dead or beheaded after they refused recruitment into jihadists' ranks. The massacre by Islamic insurgents happened on the 7th of April in a village in Mozambique's northernmost region of Cabo Delgado. There's a local bishop there, Luis Fernando Lisboa of Pemba, who described these young men as true martyrs of peace because they would not agree to take part in the violence. We're going to talk about these issues and others and all of the reasons why these things might even be able to happen in the first place with our special guest today, Elizabeth Kendall. An international religious liberty analyst and advocate, she serves as director of advocacy at the Canberra-based Christian Faith and Freedom, and she is an adjunct research fellow at the Arthur Jeffrey Centre for the Study of Islam at Melbourne School of Theology. And uh, always such a, pre- a pleasure to be able to welcome Elizabeth Kendall. Elizabeth, a special welcome back to 2020. And thanks for
1: having me, Neil.
0: Elizabeth, it's disturbing to hear the sorts of numbers that we're hearing, 52 young men. Uh, This is a story that came across your desk and you've uh, delved rather deeply into this uh, to research the reasons why. Uh, Give us your insights into what happened.
1: Well, I'll just start off by saying I don't actually know that they were, we don't know that they were Christians. So it's quite possible that they were 52 young Muslim men. Um, there's, there's the uh, radical Islam that is raising its head in the northern part of Cabo Delgado, the northern part of, in northern part of Mozambique, is really splitting the Muslim community, and um, the local Muslims have been trying to c- trying to counter it. Um, it's brought the Muslim community into conflict. These young Wahhabi Muslims have come into conflict with the with the more mature, uh, probably rather nominal or folk Muslims who reject the violence, so it's quite possible that the 52 young men who the bishop did describe as martyrs for peace were quite possibly young Muslim men who refused to be to engage in terrorism against the state. And uh, yes, they were. They were mostly either shot at point blank like range or beheaded. So. Many of them were beheaded. This is appalling. 52 young men. That would be you know, probably quite a large percentage of the young men of any sizeable village. Wow. So it's a, a horrendous trauma for that village. And it really shows the degree to which uh, I think this is a pivotal moment for Mozambique because the community is so, the Muslim community is so divided on the subject of this Islam, this new sort of form of Islam that's coming into their country, that the government has an opportune moment to come on side with these Muslims and help them deal with it and help them get rid of it. And I think it's a pivotal moment for Mozambique because of that.
0: Wow. You know, as you describe those issues at hand, it just brings us into how complex it is to be able to make sense of this because when I hear the words of the bishop who's a Christian bishop and he's describing these young men as martyrs for peace uh, but you say Mm -hmm. there's no confirmation and perhaps you can't tell at all uh, as to the background but it really does raise to our thoughts this idea of intimidation and there are radical Islamists who use intimidation not only to bring their control over uh, the populace who may be Christian in that village, uh, but also to bring all of the other Muslim people into line and under their control. Intimidation is a very powerful tool.
1: Oh yes, they're, they're using terror as a as a, uh, as a as a as a megaphone. So um, they were quite possibly recruiting from their own people group, the Muawi, who are who are a Muslim people group. They live mostly on the coast. And they're more connected, actually, with the coastal Muslims of Tanzania and Kenya, the Swahili Muslims. So they've got a Swahili culture, and they were quite possibly wanting to recruit from their own people. Um, and they said, and, and yet their own people said, no, we we don't want it. And that's why I think this is such a critical, pivotal moment for Mozambique. It, it has to decide whether it's actually going to change some of its ways which I would say have, where there's been systemic uh, discrimination or marginalisation against this northern Muslim people or whether they will come on side and they will help and they will govern for all and they could actually turn the tide really uh, turn the tide, they could save Mozambique from catastrophe if they handle this well and I think um, I think every western country, every country that has a Muslim minority I uh, can probably learn from what happens in Mozambique and to, and to how the government handles it if they handle it well and avert a crisis or if they handle it badly and it starts to spin out of control and ruins you know that uh, economic development for the country.
0: Elizabeth, a lot of listeners won't be so familiar with Mozambique geographically. Uh, it's uh, in, in, uh, in my understanding it's uh, towards the south, in Africa, uh, it's uh, near Zimbabwe. Uh, the uh, It's bordered by a number of countries. And uh, the idea of talking about the uh, Cabo Delgado, which is the region we're talking about here, uh, it's a little bit different to the rest of the country. Uh, give us some insights here into, uh, into how you understand the differences of things that are going on in Mozambique.
1: Well, Mozambique um, is in like the southern part of East Africa. So it's close to South Africa. In fact, the capital of Mozambique, when I was looking at it on the map recently, the um, the capital, Maputo, is 2,500 kilometres south of Cabo Delgado and the border with Tanzania. So the capital is a long way away. The capital is actually closer to the major cities of South Africa, like Johannesburg and other major cities. It's... And it's on that same sort of level, uh, geographically, um, what are we longitudinally? Um, and, and that's probably, probably culturally as well. Um, the bishop of, of, uh, Pemba, which is the capital of Cabo Delgado, he, he makes the comment that it's almost as like we're not even part of the country up here. We're, we're so isolated, so far away and neglected. It's been neglected for a long period of time. And it's the only province in Mozambique where there are, where the, where the majority of people are Muslims. So in Mozambique, and in fact, let me just pick up something that was quite interesting. I noticed as I was looking over my work, the prayer bulletin I wrote, which I wrote in the beginning of April, I used the statistics from Operation World, which was done 2010. And that had the Christian population at 46%. And then, when I went on to the uh, to find, when I wrote up my larger report that had much more research done in it, I actually found the 2017 census, and that has the Christian population at 59. What is it? Uh, hang on, at 59.8 hmm. percent, and that's actually indicative of how Christianity has been growing in Mozambique. See, Mozambique has a long history of conflict. Uh, it, it was um, it was a Portuguese colony for a long time, and the Muslims on the northern coast were favoured by the Portuguese, and it put sort of Barry. It set up it set up a like a religious ethnic fault line uh, and tensions in the country. And then with the war of independence, the Muslims on that northern coast fought alongside the Portuguese while the Christians and the Southerners all fought for independence. So the fault line, the ethnic religious fault line in the country is pretty deep. And then after that, uh, Mozambique became a a Cold War uh, proxy war site. So for a long time it was backed, the government, Prolimo, was backed by the Soviet Union. And for a decade... From like the mid 1970s into the mid 1980s, there was a concerted effort by the Marxist government, the Soviet-backed Marxist government, to eliminate Christianity, and there was terrible persecution of the church. And then, when communism fell in in Eastern Europe and the Soviet Union, you know, uh, fell apart, that all all ended in Mozambique. And since then. It's just, it's been transformed. There's still a lot of problems, a lot of corruption, but in terms of religious freedom, it's it's just been remarkable. And so since, you know, like 1991, 1992, there's been openness, there's been freedom, and the church just blossomed and grown marvellously. And there's just this little pocket up in Cabo Delgado where it's majority Muslim, The Muslims live on the coast and they're linked in with the Swahili culture and the Swahili language around the coast and they've been deliberately marginalized by the government. It's a government that rewards its supporters and marginalizes everybody else, which is a recipe for unrest, a recipe for anger and that's sort of where this begins to simmer and 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 where it where this whole conflict has its roots.
0: We might talk about governance in just a few moments but great to reflect because there is that good news element of what we're talking about today when you talk about the rise of Christianity in Mozambique and I'm just casting my own memory back to a conversation I had must have been a year or two ago now uh, about tens of thousands of churches now that's tens of thousands of churches being planted in Mozambique so uh, when we talk about those southern or sub-Saharan African nations that have been in revival, uh, clearly uh, Mozambique has been one of those but even while you've got the growth of Christianity uh, you've also got as you say these pockets of other religious faith and we're talking about Islam and you've got various groups within Islam that treat their faith in a different way. And uh, from what I understand, the arrival of a particular group called the Wahhabis or Wahhabism has been partly uh, brewing in Mozambique and causing some of the uh, distress that may have led to this massacre. What are your thoughts about the the changing uh, religious nature in this uh, in this area we're talking about? Yes, well, uh,
1: the store of what's happening in Mozambique it's a perfect example of what my, one of my favourite strategic forecasters calls the convergence of trends. And he says it's never one thing that kicks off a conflict. It's always the convergence of trends. And one of the trends has been, since about the year 2000, the arrival of Wahhabism. That's the, the, the Sunni Islam from Saudi Arabia. It's come from uh, Saudi missionaries. It's also come from... The fact that local, uh, local youths have been given scholarships from Saudi Arabia to study in the various, you know, Wahhabi, uh, fundamentalist universities and they've come back radicalized. And then they've started, uh, having disputes with local Muslims. And this started happening from about the year 2000. And then there, it, it rose to a peak in about 2014, I gather, from uh, this uh, an analysis I read. In 2014, this religious group, uh, a Wahhabi group that had established little sort of like house mosques and little cultural centres and little madrasas everywhere to teach people the true Islam, uh, as they reported it, and to tell people to stay away from all those apostates, the Muslims who were not Wahhabis. Uh, It it came to loggerheads in about 2014 and the the Islamic clerics, the mainline Islamic clerics in northern Mozambique uh, almost came to blows, I think, with these young Wahhabis and they had a sharp disagreement and from that point on, so from 2015, that's when the group starts developing uh, a militant wing. And they start putting together these little the militias. They start their training, and they start believing that they have to fight not just against the state, the uh, the infidel state of Mozambique, but against these uh, what well they would call them apostate uh, Muslims because they're not true Muslims as far as the Wahhabis are concerned. So this sharp division comes in society, and uh, that was about 2015, and the first terror attack happened um, in October 2017. And it was the first terror attack that Mozambique had ever experienced. And it was big. And this it was just a band of about 30 Wahhabi jihadists, mostly locals, but with a, a few Tanzanians and Kenyans and, and Ugandans in amongst them, uh, took over this port city of Mossamboa de Priya. They took it over for the whole day. And back in 2017, and they terrorized everyone. They said they wanted an Islamic state, and then the army came up and drove them out. But that was the beginning. And since then, they have just absolutely wreaked havoc. Uh, they've killed uh, more than 700 people, according to Doctors Without Borders and uh, Medicine Sans Frontiers, and they've displaced more than 200,000. And most of the Muslims up there don't even know what's going on. One, uh, one survivor told uh, one journalist, we don't even know what these people want. We just see them killing people. And so they just wreaked terror, wreaked havoc. And then in June of last year, June 2019, Islamic State took notice and claimed responsibility for an attack. And then the group uh, declared their allegiance to Islamic State, and since then, of course, they've had the benefit of uh, more weapons, more experts, and more funding, and the terror, it has become more sophisticated.
0: Visions 2020 with Neil Johnson. A biblical perspective on life, culture, and current events. Elizabeth Kendall is our guest. We're talking about Mozambique. We're talking about the latest massacre. 52 young men slaughtered, either shot dead or beheaded, after they refused recruitment into jihadists' ranks. And we've discovered that they may or may not have been Christian. Uh, And I made the assumption that uh, Bishop Luis Fernando Lisboa uh, describe these young men as true martyrs of peace. As a Christian bishop, uh, you might assume that he is talking about young Christian men. Elizabeth Kendall. When we talk about this uh, this city, uh, Cabo Delgado, uh, there's money coming from around the world, investment in gas. Uh, but the people of the city are not experiencing the benefits of what's flowing through and there's an environment that's being created here amongst young men uh, who are feeling as though they are uh, somehow or other uh, detached from their society. Give us some insights here into uh, what's been happening in the environment where this massacre took place. Yes,
1: Cabo Delgado is the province. It's the actual, the whole province in that far north Uh, Eastern coastal province of Mozambique. And as I was saying before, when I said it's the convergence of trends that makes for a major, uh, you know, catastrophe or a crisis, this is where the other element comes in. So we've got, we've got Wahhabism simmering in the Muslim community coming in mostly by you, from you youths who have had experience maybe sitting under the Wahhabi priest in Mombasa, Kenya, or, or maybe studying in Riyadh or something. Mm-hmm. The other trend is, is the fact that in Cabo Delgado, this far northern province of Mozambique, gas has been found. Major gas supplies. It promises, rather to change the whole economic situation, not only for Mozambique, but for East Africa. So it'll make Mozambique one of the largest gas suppliers in the world. It'll be huge. Now, this was first discovered in 2010, and uh, gradually more and more companies have come in from around the world. Um, and the problem is, you see, as I think I mentioned before, for Limo, which has governed Mozambique since independence, has had this tendency to reward its supporters and neglect everyone else now what they need to do what the government needs to do is it needs to build a major uh, liquid uh, natural gas uh, refinery on the on the coast of Mozambique so virtually all the gas fields are offshore but the refinery will be on the coast uh, where the Swahili Muslims Live and are the are the original inhabitants, and what this has meant is that the government, instead of finding, instead of finding a really good way to make this work, it's I, I get the impression they've been quite heavy-handed, just sweeping these Muslim people away, the the Mawawi Muslims, sweeping them aside, are uh, forcibly relocating them so they can build their gas plant. And the jobs will most probably be going to, to Frelimo supporters who are mostly of, of other people groups and uh, they're the business and political elites who are coming up from the south and investing from the south. So the Muslims who live on the coast, especially those who are being driven from their land and cut off from their traditional fishing grounds, their, their traditional farming lands, their homeland uh, often with or generally without adequate compensation there's a there's an anger simmering there and there's disillusionment and you've got you've got young people young muslims who are in this isolated area where there's limited opportunities limited healthcare limited education uh, limited everything limited prospects and all of a sudden they see all this development happening and they're not in line for the jobs the jobs are going to the to the people who support the government and so the anger is growing in in these communities and so the wahhabis who preach a religion that that justifies and legitimizes violence against the state that they're angry with uh, is is finding this a really fertile ground for recruitment and they're recruiting these young, angry young Muslims who just feel that, that the, the local mosques are not doing anything for us. Um, the government doesn't do anything for us. And they're, they're looking for a reason to let off their steam and to try and change things. And attacking the, attacking the gas will be, uh, will be an inevitable result in the end. But at the moment, they're just really, really angry. Uh, about the, the, their, their marginalisation and so the government must address this issue before it gets any bigger. So they're the two things that have converged, I'd say. The anger over the marginalisation in, in, in this context of, of, the, of the gas coming in plus the arrival of the Wahhabis. Bring those two things together and it's explosive.
0: Elizabeth, is there a general principle in this. When you look at what's going on in Mozambique and uh, the government as you say, governing for their own supporters and neglecting everyone else Uh, the idea then that there are those who are in the community who feel dispossessed marginalised, cut off rejected and therefore when some group like these Wahhabis swoop in they have a fertile ground in which to plant mm-hmm. their seeds of of uh, of jihad. Is this the sort of thing, there's a general principle here?
1: Oh, absolutely. One thing that these jihadist groups have become like gold medalists, world champions at, is exploiting grievance, exploiting other causes. So... um uh, and the cause might not be even remotely justified, but um, if they have a cause that they can jump on the back of, they ride on the back of it. So they they general, generally, I find in almost every situation where there are jihadists wreaking havoc, and international jihadist organisations like Al Qaeda and Islamic State coming in. They're not coming in with great promises of hope, really. They're coming in riding on the back of other causes. They're exploiting other people's uh, anger or their sadness or their disillusionment. And I think what the government has to work hard to do, not just in Mozambique, but in other places, is make sure that they don't actually hand the jihadis uh, something they can work with. So um, President uh, Philippe Nayoussi was re-elected in October and in his, in his uh, inauguration speech in January of this year, he promised to rule for all Mozambicans. And I think if ever there was a day that that needs to happen, it's now. He needs to reach out and show the young men of, of northern Mozambique, young Muslim men, that they, especially those who might have to move, leave their lands because of uh, because of the development of the uh, LNG uh, infrastructure, that they might they can be first in line for jobs. They need to the money that comes in to Mozambique through Cabo Delgado province needs to be invested first and foremost in Cabo Delgado, in hospitals, in health care, in schooling. Uh, one way that the Wahhabis have really spread themselves is through their madrasas because so many Muslims are so poor that they will send their children to the madrasas, the IS madrasas, because the madrasas offer to feed them, shelter them and everything. The government needs to be building schools that offer high school certificate and the prospect of, of advancement. They need to not give the jihadists Ground. They are making the ground fertile. And uh, I think every country can can look at this and learn from it. And as I keep saying, today is the day that things have to change in
0: Mozambique. Okay, lessons to learn. Let's just come quickly to this Facebook question I'm asking listeners to respond to today. And facebook.com forward slash vision radio. Is the cause of Christ something that God expects his followers to die for? Uh, well, the early running on that is 91% of listeners who've responded so far are saying yes, and 9% are saying no. Dashana says, die to self, yes, but not all are called to literally die for the sake of the gospel. For some, that is what happens, but for others, their living legacy makes an impact for the sake of the kingdom. Mm-hmm. Uh, then Kevin says, why wouldn't you? That's not to say that you have to. And uh, we're only just uh, a minute away from the news, but a quick insight here from you, Elizabeth Kendall, and uh, and then we'll we'll follow this up after the news. But what are your thoughts on the question?
1: Oh, well, you know, I think um, I think we need to understand the degree to which the Holy Spirit gives us will give us grace to rise to the occasion when, if God actually does call on us to die. for for the Lord but I think the whole issue is grace and I always think of the Apostle Peter here you know he denied the Lord in order to save his skin he was frightened he was terrified he could end up on a cross next to Jesus so he denied his Lord and he was forgiven and he was commissioned Jesus knew how much he loved him he knew he knew he knew and he showed grace and Peter died as a martyr for Jesus and, and the Holy Spirit uh, gave him the grace to rise. I think, we, I think we often think, oh, I could never do that.
0: Elizabeth, I cut you off a little uh, before we went to news and we were talking about the Facebook question. I'm asking listeners to respond to today. And the, the question, is the cause of Christ something that God expects his followers to die for? and listeners have been responding on that Facebook post, 91% are saying yes, 9% saying no. Luke says Christ himself died on a wooden cross. And Carolyn says, yes, if it's God's will for our lives, and I pray God will give us everything we need at the time to be able to, to be like the disciples and all other believers who already have. There is a sense there in which, uh, you know, it's a, it's a hardcore question today. You mentioned uh, some issues around, you know, God's grace and the Apostle Peter. I wonder if you've got a few more thoughts to add.
1: Oh, yes, there have been times when uh, in the work I've, I've been doing where I've come ac- across some really deeply moving uh, situations. I can remember when I was first uh, doing this work, you know, close to 20 years ago, and there was some really terrible persecution happening in Laos, a little landlocked country in, in Southeast Asia, uh, bordering uh, Vietnam, inland from Vietnam. And the Lao government had uh, passed a law, it's a communist government, a one-party state, to eliminate Christianity. So you could actually go to prison for believing in the Jesus religion uh, and, and the persecution was really terrible. They, they were going through the countryside asking people, Christians would have to sign a document renouncing their faith. And uh, people were being uh, imprisoned. Pastors were being tortured. And there was, um, there was a group of, oh, I think, three pastors that were in prison for quite some time. They were in stocks and uh, there was a lot of prayer being offered up for them. And when they were eventually released, I was really, really shocked to find that they'd, they'd each fallen into really, really deep depression, almost suicidal depression since they'd been released because they'd been released because they'd finally, after years of being in stocks and being tortured, and is this would be real old fashioned you know pain torture, yeah. mm-hmm. nothing nothing soft um, in in a prison that they'd signed they they 'd caved they'd finally couldn 't take it anymore you know they probably ha- were, try- were were you know having to live day and night in stocks with broken bones and, and a situation that for us is almost unimaginable. And after you know a couple of years, uh, practically out of their minds, they signed. When they were released, they were almost suicidally depressed for their because they'd renounced Christ. And I just I just wanted to run over and and hug them yeah. <laughs> and say, "Remember the Lord, remember the Apostle Peter, you know, remember him, remember what he did for less, just out of sheer fear that he might get tortured or he might be killed." He renounced his Lord, and the Lord did not renounce him. Uh, The Lord loved him. He continued to love him, um, and he then commissioned him. He said, feed my sheep, Peter. He commissioned him after all that because the Lord knew how much he loved him. That wasn't wasn't the issue. He understood. It's just God's grace is amazing. And then in the power of the Holy Spirit at a later date, Peter went to the cross and he died a martyr for Jesus Christ. And I think we need to understand that if it is God's will that we die, the Holy Spirit will enable us to rise to the occasion. I have no doubt about that. And, and I think I've, I've seen some amazing uh, amazing cases. And I think also too of a young man in Somalia, uh, a Muslim man, a Muslim convert to Christianity, Uh, His name was, um, his last name was Muhammad, and I can't remember his first name, Um, Mustafa Muhammad or something like that. I can't remember. But he was the first native Somali convert to Christianity to die as a martyr for Jesus. He was taken by al-Shabaab, a young man in his 20s, put into like a kangaroo court, uh, deemed guilty as a murtad, an, an, an enemy of Islam, uh, offered the opportunity to renounce Christ, refused to do it, and was beheaded. Now, I never watched the image. I, I couldn't do that. But people who did an, analyze the footage that was put out said he was so amazingly calm and peaceful. Uh, to the end, it was just phenomenal. We saw the same with the 21 martyrs on the beach, the, Libyan, the martyrs on the Libyan beach, the Coptic martyrs, uh, peaceful. Uh, they died with the name of Jesus on their lips, Yeshua, as they were all just beheaded. None of them were kicking, screaming, and, and swearing. They, they all spoke the name of Yeshua and and were beheaded on the beach. And God does something wonderful. I think for us as Australian Christians, probably the biggest issue is not whether are we prepared to die for Christ, but are we prepared to, uh, you know, be humiliated for Christ. Uh, to be mocked for Christ, or do how quickly do we become ashamed of the Lord Jesus Christ when, when uh, you know, when we might be mocked? You know, if if the television cameras came to our church and stuck the television camera in and said, "Are you a bunch of you know all these phobias?" Uh, would we suddenly become ashamed of Christ and run and hide, or or or, or d- deny the, deny the wisdom of God? So I think we actually, one thing that challenges me greatly is that is the incredible courage that I so often see from Christians who are who who endure persecution, whether it's through long imprisonments, even children who have been martyred in in places like uh, you know during the the, the Ambon War, the, the religious wars in eastern Indonesia. Um, incredible courage unto death, and yet here we are so quick to run just because we might be laughed at mm-hmm. <laughs> or be called a name. You know, we become ashamed of Christ very quickly, and this is where I think we need to really look in the mirror and say, are we really prepared to be countercultural Christians, unashamed of the wisdom of God, unashamed of the Lord Jesus Christ, in spite of mockery, uh, in spite of marginalization, uh, loss of job, loss of, res- of the respect of, of our neighbors and things, all for the for, for standing for Jesus Christ. Um, I think we could start with looking at that question sometime. Yeah.
0: Well, it is one of the toughest questions we ever contemplate, isn't it? Is the cause of Christ something that God expects his followers to die for, and we put ourselves in the shoes of, say, those 52 young men, and what would we have done? What would we have said? And uh, you bring some wonderful, wise insight, Elizabeth Kendall, as you remember the Apostle Peter. And we could go through a whole lot of great scriptures, and uh, the uh, challenge there for listeners today, I mean, go to your Bible and do a little search on, what God says about martyrdom or about dying or suffering for his sake. And, of course, as you say, Elizabeth, uh, dying is not the only uh, persecution that happens. A lot of people suffer for Christ in all sorts of different forms. And uh, whether it's being denied a promotion at work or a whole lot of other issues that happen in a persecuted society where Christians are under the thumb of their oppressors there's a lot of that happening around the world today
1: yes and i think i think it doesn't hurt us sometimes to really sit down quietly in our quiet times and to to really consider where we're at personally in this regard and to, to think about those times when an opportunity was open to us. You know, an opportunity presented itself and we quickly avoided it because we didn't want to see that person raise their eyebrow, you know, to think we're a bit weird. And yet, and another one of my favorite, favorite scriptures actually is from um, Jonah. I think it's chapter two of Jonah. So Jonah has, decided he doesn't want to take God's uh, grace to Nineveh because the Assyrians, you know, they're the enemy and the Ninevites are so wicked and I don't want to take the gospel there. So he runs away and is and, and sw- we all know the story. is swallowed by the fish and spat out. But while he's in the belly of the fish, he repents. And in his prayer, he makes this, I think it's one of the most fantastic little statements. In the middle of his prayer, he says, uh, um, those who oh <laughs> words have gone right me. Uh those who those who I'm going to have to turn it up. If you oh, say yeah.
0: those who enough times, it'll come. So <laughs> it'll come.
1: Oh, here we are you uh, Here we are. Those who those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs. Mm. And I just sort of think those of us who cling to you know our own prestige. Uh, We don't want people to raise their eyebrows at us or think we're weird. Those who cling to all these worthless things, even our wealth and our prosperity, forfeit the grace that could be theirs. And I think about what Jonah was at risk of losing here. If he'd hung on to what he wanted to hang on to, which really he thought was his life and his dignity and everything, he would have lost the opportunity to see the Ninevites, the Assyrians turn to worship Yahweh and repent of their sins and worship Yahweh. And I know Jonah wasn't really impressed when it did happen, but, you know, he, he would have lost it. And I often think that of myself, and I think I missed that opportunity because I clung to something worthless and I forfeited the grace that could be mine, the opportunity maybe to see this person, uh, you know, light up. And um, I I just love that little verse there, and I think of it
0: a lot. There are lots of verses, aren't there? I mean, just uh, out of the Beatitudes in Matthew chapter 5, blessed are Mm -hmm. those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. There's these affirmations that go along with those who suffer, uh, that, you know, Jesus says, you know, don't be... Surprised if the world hates you because it hated me first. And so, if you're a follower of Christ, then the anticipation that not everybody will say nice things, do nice things, and uh, even to the extent of martyrdom, uh, that may well be a possibility for the future. So to contemplate those things, but in order to advance to a point where you can really grapple with that issue, and none of us can be absolutely sure how we might respond in the moment, but we wouldn't respond faithfully in the moment unless we were discipled and there is a certain sense here that when you've got and coming back to our conversation about what's been happening in Mozambique discipleship is a big issue here because uh, if we don't disciple those young men and women today coming up in their Christian faith, there are others who are on the sidelines wanting to them to be discipled in all sorts of other ways, whether it's a secularization or whether it's uh, even a stream of, of, uh, of uh, Islamists who might even be knocking on the door of our, of our children and our grandchildren. Uh, there's a certain sense here, Elizabeth Kendall, that discipleship becomes a really important element in how we prepare for the sorts of persecutions that are coming on the earth.
1: Oh, absolutely. And, and not even just persecution, but all sorts of temptations, uh, sexual temptation, uh, economic temptations, all sorts of temptations, uh, and the temptation, of course, to, to deny Christ when, when we are persecuted. If we're not prepared in advance, we often we don't do it. We're, we're not, it's about like being rooted in. And I think this is something where the church has actually failed quite a lot. In these decades that we've had, or even centuries, maybe, but certainly decades of peace and prosperity in the West, um, we've become very lazy in this regard. I don't, maybe I've just been in the wrong churches all my life, but I, I haven't seen really solid efforts to really train young people and new believers in discipleship, and and by that I mean also preparing them. Uh, for persecution preparing them that this could happen to you you know you could be mocked you could be rejected um and 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 you know i think it's really important i was at a meeting um uh, or a zoom meeting actually at the for the to the Arthur Jeffrey center at the study of islam at, at melbourne school of theology just the other day and Someone mentioned that they feel like the biggest need at the moment in terms of ministry to Muslims, so many Muslims are coming to Christ, that the big need now is discipleship. We really need discipleship. And I, and I really agree. I mean, that's really obviously true. But I actually think we need it across the board. I think that mainline churches have not done this well. And when I look at a country like Mozambique, which has seen real growth in Christianity just in recent decades uh, since 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 things opened up in the 90s and things became more free. There's been wonderful church growth uh, in the Catholic Church and especially in the Protestant Evangelical Church. But if these young people uh, just sit back and rest on their salvation without really being discipled um, as to what it means to be a follower of Jesus then they're not going to make a great difference in the country. Now, a lot of the people who will benefit from the gas that's coming in and the money that's coming into northern Cabo Delgado uh, province will probably be uh, the Christians, Christian business people, Christian elites. Uh, There's a tribe uh, in the north that's got a large uh, percentage of Christians in it. And they will probably be the beneficiaries now, these, these young people need to be, I think, discipled with uh, things like the parable of the Good Samaritan, and they need to be able to look at many peaceful Muslims who don't want to be involved in violence, who are willing to die rather than, be, rather than become jihadis, and they're being driven from their lands without compensation, without adequate compensation, and they're just being swept aside by a government that, It doesn't seem to care about them so much. Now, these Christians need to be able to see them with the same eyes that the Samaritan saw the wounded man on the side of the road. They need to be able to speak up for them. And if they would do that, you know, I think the the witness for Christ would be phenomenal. And from what I can see, the bishop, uh, of the Catholic bishop in Pember is doing that and is calling for the government to make sure that the young people of the district get jobs. They're not all just handed over to Frilemo supporters. Um, but I think the church really, really needs to speak for what's just and right and true and good. And this, it starts not only with um, like the church's uh, leaders speaking out, but also with discipleship so that as people grow up through the church, they're discipled to be the sort of believers that Jesus intends us to be. And that's not the believer that just benefits, but the believer who sees the suffering of others and intervenes for them, just as the Good Samaritan did. So, yeah, and that's true in Mozambique, and it's true in Australia. It's true everywhere.
0: Elizabeth, a very important point here that oftentimes discipleship happens really best when there's a practical application. And uh, at this time, when things are changing around the world, uh, when this persecution that we're talking about in Mozambique is happening in many nations... Uh, the opportunity for people to connect some way, because and it's not just connecting if you're older, but somehow rather encouraging young people to be connected in ways that they can support the persecuted church. And Now, there's some wonderful organizations uh, that are involved in practical uh, welfare support and supporting churches and discipleship in nations around the world. Connecting with one of those organizations uh, really brings a focus on uh, on help, as you say, a little bit like the Good Samaritan, uh, so that uh, we can learn those things not just as a theoretical lesson but something practically mm-hmm. that happens in our own hearts. What's your encouragement for people to support those who are persecuted through all sorts of various organisations?
1: Oh, absolutely. And on my on my elizabethkendall.com website, I have a tab labelled Action and it's got all the different ways that we can actually... Um, act to to assist the persecuted through speaking up, through giving generously and through intercessory prayer. And um, my Religious Liberty Prayer Bulletin, which goes out weekly, will help people pray. Uh, I really want to see churches praying. In not, I'm not just individuals, but actually for churches to get on board with this. It will change the culture of the church if we would just recognise that we... We are brothers and sisters and part with, of people who are persecuted and we take up our responsibility as brothers and sisters to pray for them. And then you've got the fact that we need to give. You know, Jesus said, whatever you do for the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you do for me. And whatever you do not do, you do not do for me. Uh, and we need to give. And there's lots of groups like Voice of the Martyrs and Open Doors. And the Barnabas Fund and, and and others that are and denominational groups as well and uh, Christian medical charities as well and missionary groups that are running hospitals as well uh, where we can actually put money into places where Christians are witnessing and are being persecuted and we can help them because as as James says in, in his epistle. Uh, What good is it to to pat someone on the back and say, have peace and be well, if you do not uh, actually attend to the needs that they have, their their physical needs? It's a waste of time. So
0: So we have
1: to actually do that.
0: Best discipleship is some form of connection, and it perhaps Mm -hmm. doesn't even need to be a lot. Some people say, I couldn't give because I can't give a $1,000. Well, perhaps giving $100 or even $50 uh, might be a significant start there. And you didn't mention the organisation that you are connected with, Christian Faith and Freedom. And uh, just give us a, a little 30-second a uh, update on Christian Faith and Freedom, if you can, uh, just uh, as to the sort of work that you're involved in and that the organisation does in supporting the persecuted church.
1: Well, yes, Christian Faith and Freedom, our main work is to to keep the government accountable, really, or to keep informing the government of the plight of persecuted Christians um, so that the government can't say, we didn't know that. Now, generally, it is the case that the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade does know what's happening. But it's very easy for them to push it aside and not care about it and not act on it unless someone is constantly pressing them to act. And expecting them to act and and wanting to see some results, some evidence that they are talking. So that's what Christian faith and freedom does. And, and we write, we write submissions. We engage face to face. We talk to people at Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade, and we witness to them in the process. And that's probably for me one of my one of my favourite things: being able to explain to the people at Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade what it is a Christian actually believes and what it is a Christian actually does. And, you know, most of them have no idea yep. whatsoever. So it's one a wonderful opportunity.
0: Well, we're heartened that you are in the midst of all of that, Elizabeth Kendall. You have such a wonderful way of explaining things. And uh, so Christian Faith and Freedom, uh, for listeners who might not have supported that organisation before, simply Google Christian Faith and Freedom, no doubt, Uh, there'll be some ways that you can connect either as a prayer partner or as someone who makes a a financial contribution and undoubtedly they'll be needing a friend or two as things are tight for all of those Christian ministries right around Australia, indeed right around the world. Elizabeth Kendall is an international religious liberty analyst and advocate. Uh, The two books I mention when I'm talking to Elizabeth because they're to do with the persecution of Christian believers. One is turn back the battle. Isaiah speaks to Christians today. The other is after Saturday comes Sunday. Let me point you to the website where you can connect with all of these things we're talking about today, elizabethkendall.com elizabethkendall.com and thanks to everyone who responded to our Facebook question today came in at 91% said yes to the question is the cause of Christ something that God expects his followers to die for Uh, 9% said no but it was good to stimulate our thoughts around that issue. Elizabeth thanks so much for taking some time to share your thoughts and your heart with us once again today on 2020.
1: And thanks for having me Neil